Hi, welcome back to Jet Bangers Ball. This is your host, Jed Bayhew. Today I'm excited to have my good buddy Stephen Brower on the show. We met in a practice space in Silver Lake. Ended up having some adventures together. We're going to get into that on the show. I don't want to bore you with that information right now. But check him out. He's doing good stuff. I got to get going here. I got to go down to the uh, Mediterranean sandwich shop where I work. That's my life. That's going on with me. I'm doing a podcast and I'm going to make sandwiches for some people here in LA. So let's talk to Steven so I can get to work. What is, what is it's a Grateful Dead book of photography or what is that? I think that's what that is. I'm yeah. going to the to the shows. I'm going to the Chicago thing. You're gonna go for all three shows? I'm going for two of the three shows. What dates are you going? I'm going for the Friday and the Saturday, the second and the third. And I would I would normally I don't know if I would have normally gone. I mean I'm a fan of certain certain points of the career of the dead, but my friend Phil who who has a black cloud just over his life in general, I feel like. He, like, tried to get... He, like, rode in for tickets, and then he, like, you know, went on StubHub. He's just been sort of frantically trying to get tickets, and he's from Chicago, and he loves the Grateful Dead, and he fucking loves fish, which Trey Anastasio is part of this thing, too. Sure. And he loves, like, America and July 4th. So, like, if you wrote down on a piece of paper, like, what is Phil? You would be, like, Chicago, Grateful Dead, July 4th. Like, that's him. And so when they announced this thing, he was like, uh, you know, <laughs> and he had been just like turned away at every pass. And then also like he's been shit with his job and his relationships. And then I know like this manager that I work with, who's like, hey, man, do you want to I can get you tickets if you want. And I was like, and now feels like actually maybe not going to live in L.A. anymore. So it just I was like, I have to do this to like for the sun to come out over his life. So we're we got the confirmation and he's like, we booked the tickets and the whole thing. So. So Phil and I are going to go to Chicago uh, and stay with, I think, his college roommate or something, and we're going to go to these Grateful Dead shows, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, that's interesting about you and and sort of our relationship is is you're kind of this, like, key to unlocking things like that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would like to think of myself as a key. I've never been described as a key. Well... (laughs) But I don't no, know if I, you're the key or the hole, but or, um, there's something that's getting unlocked right. involving you. Okay. And that's, that's kind of how we sort of met. I mean, the way we met was that I moved into your practice space, basically, with my band. And right. you, you had a band in there. Right. That's right. But we sort of, you know, kind of... By definition, you're never there at the same time. Exactly. Two ships passing in the night right. or, in the, or in the little parking lot right. there. And so we never really had talked uh, outside of just like, hey, what's up, man? Oh, right. Move your amp. Uh, <laughs> right. Cool. You guys right. playing any shows? Or uh, 
Right. Where are you guys playing? Oh, yeah, we're playing. Oh, we played there. It sucks. You yeah. know, blah, blah, blah. That mostly kind of, that. Yeah. Mostly that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then I was working on a film uh, with my friend Calvin, who's on episode, I think, three of the podcast. We had him on here as well. And you, you we talk about you in that podcast because... Um, oh, I'll have to listen to that one. You, you just listen yeah. to that one because okay. you mentioned it. Okay. If you're going to listen to any of okay, them, sure. okay. listen to the one that you're mentioned in. Because... So I was working on a film helping him, and I don't remember if he asked me to do it or if I just volunteered to do it or whatever, but it was um, helping him track down a song for the film in, in the role of music supervisor. And it was a song called Red Bird by an artist named Terry Allen. Yes, it was. <laughs> and, and I was having a hell of a time tracking it down or fi- figuring out who, the, who owned the rights to it the publishing, et cetera. And, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, too, of the music supervision episode, where it's like a lot of times the people you're talking to don't really... There's like an office job for them. Right. A lot of people are just playing defense. They're just... They get... Like, especially Fred, the guy who I think you had originally dealt with on our side, who was handling that with... I mean, at Vanguard, which is the label I primarily work for, you have 60-something years' worth of recordings and there's nine million people in France that want to put a Joan Baez song on it, and so there's just this flood of paperwork. And you, it's very rare that you can like contextualize what the request is versus just like what is this? This is another email or another fax that I have to deal with. Right. So I was having a hell of a time trying to get this song cleared, and then I was leaving the practice space one night, and I saw you, and I said. Just by chance, I said, "Hey, where? So, what do you do, Stephen? Where do you work, or what do you do? You know?" And you said, "I work at uh, Vanguard Records." And I said, "Terry Allen's Vanguard Records." And you said, "Yeah, I, I, I produced his <laughs> Great greatest hits, hits right, or whatever." Yeah. And I was like, "Motherfucker!" <laughs> because you know, I've never done, I'd never really done this job before as a music supervisor, and it's like I'm just helping my friend out, and you know, basically, he found the one guy, me that actually would be able to get this song. And I found the one guy, you, that would actually be able to help me get this song in just a completely random, know-nothing sort of situation. And probably, honestly, the one guy, to add one more layer of sort of serendipity to that, Terry Allen, I'm a a huge Terry Allen fan, and I think he's an absolute genius. I think he's, I don't use the term genius, like, sort of loosely. I think there are a finite number of them, and I think he is definitely one. And so, you know, worked with him for a while, and, right, produced this compilation, and of, you know, Redbird is on the compilation, and he's, of the artists that I work with of that era, of, like, the sort of older kind of legacy artists, probably one of very few of them that I could have then turned around and said, no, for sure, dude, I can totally call him now and just be like, dude, it's cool, these are good dudes, and, like, not have it be, and have it be easy, and, like, that's sort of what happened. Right. You know? And, yeah, and, and just to touch on terry allen real quick just for those that don't know i mean if if you were to describe any sort of country music uh performer singer songwriter as as an artist he's probably yeah i mean for sure i mean he's first of all he's primarily a visual artist exactly that's what i mean right in the in the most general sense of the you know but then he also like he gets lumped into this and you know sort of for geographic and and chronological reasons he gets lumped into this like West Texas scene that was like this band, the Flatlanders and Butch Hancock and Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely. 
and this like Lubbock scene and Terry Allen is like the total like sideways kind of Tom Waits bizarro world version of all that, which is to me sort of infinitely more interesting. I just always responded to it. And he writes these like, he has this record Juarez, which is this like concept record, this sort of like Bonnie and Clyde concept record kind of. It's amazing. And it's a complete standout as far as what most people consider country music or whatever. Totally. And so, yeah, I've, I've just always been, uh, I've felt a real, a real Terry Allen geekdom. Well, where are you from originally? Because you're, you're, you're from sort I'm, of a I'm different part North of the Carolina. world than most people that <laughs> are on the podcast. Yeah, I'm from North Carolina. I've lived in Los Angeles for 13 years. But yeah, I grew up in North Carolina and moved. I was working at Sugar Hill Records as like sort of an intern and then kind of like a glorified intern. And I was doing some like compilations of like bluegrass and sort of after Old Brother hit there was this like rush to like flood the market with bluegrass, which worked for a while. Right. And, and you and Mumford and Sons. We, yeah. It's like, so we like saw the same <laughs> we, we opportunity. Saw the same, totally. So I made these like bluegrass compilations as part of the series. And anyway, I thought I was going to stay working in Durham where the office was at the time. And then the job that I was going to have like dissipated and my buddy Jacob, uh, who I'd made films with in college and stuff was like, Hey, I'm going to LA. Uh, and so do you want to go? And so we went and saw Hank Williams Jr. and and then got up the next morning and drove to L.A. <laughs> You're going to love the end of the show if you mention Hank Williams Jr. now. But so did you did you come out here to do uh, film stuff then? Well, mostly, I came right? out here with like I didn't really know. I knew like two people, and both of them sort of factor prominently in the rest of my L.A. story. Is I had a professor in college who was young. She wasn't that much older than me. She was like an adjunct professor or whatever. And she had worked out here briefly for Bonafide Productions, this, this, these guys, Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa. And she was like, oh, well, if you're going to go to L.A., you should call this one guy. You should call Ron Yerksa. And then I knew Fred Jasper, the guy who you had originally tried to get to Terry Allen. Right. He Because he's the only guy that had worked in the Durham Sugar Hill office that had moved out here to work at the parent company. So those are the two people that I knew, other than the guy I was moving with. And so we get here, and I email Ron Yerksa, and I go meet with him, and he says, oh, yeah, you want to be an intern here? And I said, sure. So I started interning at Bonafide, and the first uh, I was writing script coverage because I had sort of a film studies background, and the first script I ever wrote coverage on was Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which I, th- I think I, at the time I wrote that I didn't think it was very good. What does script coverage mean? Well, what script is- coverage is like, uh, so all these producers get like, um, you know, all these scripts that are sent from the various agencies or whatever. And, and rather than um, read all of the scripts, the producers will have uh, staffers read the scripts and sort of summarize them both from a plot standpoint and like, all right, what is this trying to accomplish? Is it marketable or whatever? Are you Do you recommend that we take this one seriously? And then it sort of gets kicked up the chain or whatever. And that one, I think they, honestly, I think they had already maybe like, already were working on and they were just like here's a practice one or, or they were like, testing you maybe to see if were. you were good at script coverage. so i wrote uh i wrote that the the script i thought was pretty shitty and it later won an oscar right. for best <laughs> best original screenplay uh so, so i you're was not doing script so coverage, i was bad at that job uh but meanwhile fred the other guy that i knew my boss um my now boss like there was a girl that was an assistant in like the marketing department at Vanguard Records, 
and Fred, Vanguard and Sugar Hill are sister labels, so Fred was working in that office, and he literally was overhearing this girl getting fired, and he was like, hey, uh, this girl's getting fired. You should, like, just show up tomorrow with your resume. <laughs> right, that's a good friend. <laughs> so I did, and my now boss was like, are you the kid that was in Durham, like, making the bluegrass compilations? And I was like, yep, that's me. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're in. You know, that's every time I've ever gotten a job or gotten somebody else a job, it's totally like just because someone else had just gotten fired in. And it's not it's not that uh, you're so great or anything. They just really needed somebody like immediately. Yeah, I just showed up and they're like, yeah, you do the work. With your so, CDRs totally. and your compilations, your mixtapes. So, um, yeah, that, that's how I got here. Were you in North Carolina? You were back. Is is that where like David Gordon Green and those guys got their start yeah, down there? So were you going to the same school as those guys? Those dudes. Some of those dudes went. David Gordon Green went to school of the arts, uh, and like he definitely knew. I know people that knew. There was like a, a generation maybe older than me that was like David Gordon Green and Peyton Reed, and there was like and then all the dudes who did King of the Hill. Uh, and so like, that was like kind of a crew of North Carolina filmmakers. I went to school with like, there was like, I was in part of this sort of Chapel Hill music sort of film scene. Like when I was there around like the triangle, it was kind of like the alt country boom, like, uh, whiskey town, Ryan Adams, like that was all happening. And then a bunch of other great bands that nobody's ever heard of. And, um, then Tiff Merritt like was at college at the same time I was in college with her and like so that was that was it was sort of the scene we would go to show and then I had a little band and we would play it was sort of like an alt country band the drive by truckers guys we got to know really well because right. that was all part of that scene uh, and then like yeah half of those people made movies and half of them were in bands and some people did both and that right. was kind of the crew gotcha so then you get you get out here and you're working at you get the job at Vanguard and what what's your job there then. So I was just sort of like the – I was the marketing department assistant, and we were uh, distributed ourselves at the time, which mostly meant that I dealt with, like, retail. But what was awesome about that was that every week we would have these meetings, and it was just my job to, like, do the notes for the meeting. And so I very quickly figured out what everybody did because, like, the radio people would be like, this is what we're doing. And then the, like, publicity people would be like, this is what we did this week. And so I would sort of see how all the feast, you know, the pieces fit together. And then sort of whatever, at, at the end of the, I sort of just picked all, I was, I just picked all the things that I liked. And I was like, I like, I go to record stores, so can I call on the indie record stores? And I have a film background, so can I be in charge of our music videos? And like, I'd go see more bands than most of the other people here, so can I be in charge of like finding them new bands that aren't like already established artists? And so I just, they kind of just kept letting me do that stuff. And that's, sort of what I did for a long time. Well, because I think of Vanguard as sort of like a catalog label in a sense in that, you know, you have a lot of like kind of older artists right. um, that have extensive careers and catalogs and things like that. I mean, can you talk a little bit about like what sort of Vanguard is all about? Yeah, I mean, so Vanguard, definitely, yeah. The, it's sort of a, the legacy of Vanguard is, classic like sort of folk blues uh doc watson joan baez buddy guy like mississippi john hurt john fahey all this incredible stuff then sort of more and like a bunch of weirdo stuff too that like you know so you remember the hits but then there's like they definitely chase some trends along the way and you're like well there's these weird disco records or whatever. i mean i think that that's when when did the label start I mean, so the label started in 1960. Yeah, so I think you know in the 60s and 70s with some of these record labels, you know, they had Led Zeppelin on there, and then they also would have just like a really weird like 
Tropicana, bluesy, right. Hawaiian, whatever the kind of trend. Oh yeah, at the I mean time and that was, was that was like I did this, I produced this comp a couple of years ago with this guy Dave Katz Nelson, and the whole comp, love Dave Katz Nelson. Yeah, so that comp Dave and I did this comp, and it was like after Vanguard had a hit, like Country Joe and the Fish was like a hit, right? And so they were like, oh, let's sign all the all the San Francisco. There's other bands like this in San Francisco. Let's put out singles of all them, and they're all they're mostly terrible, but like they'll be like a song. You know, or whatever, and so we sent like the comp is like the like chase. Well, the know? idea is that if you know Country Joe sells you know five hundred thousand copies, that if you know this his buddy's band right. sells ten percent of that, and then we, we still sold fifty thousand records, and we didn't have to invest too much money, and that guy came along and was just like we gave him some weed, and like right. he was totally <laughs> stoked on that just to be there. Uh, dude, believe me, I've seen some of those deals. <laughs> like, do we still own this? Can we put this out? And I'm like, holy shit, that's the deal. All right, 300 bucks on a plane ticket to New York. <laughs> All right. Like, those are the old deals that they had? Or like, there's this, so we did this record with uh, that Light in the Attic actually reissued with uh, this guy, Bob Frank, that's this like Memphis mm-hmm. stoner folk kind of like J.J. Kale kind of record. And that... Like and Bob Frank's still around, and I'm like researching whether or not we can license this to Light in the Attic to put out. And like Bob Frank was actually never signed to Vanguard. It was like he was signed to a production company who had a like an imprint deal or whatever. And then I'm like, oh well, looks like that the production company made a really shitty deal with you. Like, and we, our deal was with them. Like, I don't know. It's just like researching all that stuff. It's like holy shit. Like, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, to, just to think of how. They used to run these record labels compared to now, and what and now every like fucking guy with band or whatever comes in with like the legalzoom.com right. website queued up, and they're right. just like, Man, we got this thing here, you know. Where what about like, what about my returns reserves? Yeah, like, I'm not yeah, selling my publishing, right. unless you know what, no one gives a shit about your songs, anyways. But cool, right. hang on to your publishing, dude. <laughs> Everyone walking around, I'm not selling my publishing, right. you know, like, okay, great, don't don't sell it, that's fine, no one will ever buy it, anyways. So don't worry about selling it. Totally. But, you know, you see these things back in the day. And a lot of, like, you know, <clears throat> you read about, like, soul musicians or R&B musicians or whatever, and they would walk in and they'd be like, where are my royalties at or whatever? And the guy would be like, well, there's this Cadillac parked out here and we can... Oh, that's the famous Sun can, Records. Yeah, yeah we I can mean. talk about that or we can go for a drive or whatever. And the guy's like, oh, all right, well, you know, I need a car, so... Well, that was like when we worked with Levon. We worked with Levon. So the, sort of fast forward to Vanguard kind of 2.0, which is like... Vanguard kind of currently, as it's consisted, you know, sort of constituted and has been for a while, is sort of like half really kind of established iconic artists who we work with. John Fogarty and until he passed away, Levon Helm and Merle Haggard we worked with for a while and artists like that. And then sort of developing sort of more mainstream kind of like pop singer-songwriters. Right, because what we're talking about is like the the a very antiquated kind of idea of the record label. So how does how does Vanguard you know, uh, navigate those waters these days between these old... I mean, some of these guys probably have, like, expectations of the way things used to be or are used to working a certain way. Well, I feel like, and this is where... So, with Vanguard particularly, I think it's kind of like, you know, I think the dynamic between the record label and the artist has has definitely evolved over the years, and particularly with the kinds of artists that we work with on Vanguard, where maybe, yeah, say this artist comes in and they have a relatively established fan base, or we're deciding to work with, say, John Fogarty on his new project, right? So 
you know, John Fogarty has his own sort of infrastructure that is sort of a machine of touring and merchandise and fan club or whatever it is. And then there's this new baseball uh, gloves, right? Baseball gloves. Right. And then there's this new material and we are kind of like a marketing services, you know, relationship. Like, all right, we're going to market the album, which then in turn is going to help your touring and your merchandise and whatever. And it's less, it's less the like, you know, antiquated, like, well, here's your record deal. Like, we're going we're gonna to make you a star, kid. Like, there's very little sure. of that in what I do. Right. Know? And, that, yeah, that's what I was wondering because I know that to survive, I mean, that, that, that doesn't exactly exist anymore because these, these labels don't, they're not putting out a bunch of money at the beginning and then as an investment and waiting on that return. Right, it's it's a lot more. Yeah, it's just more like a in a lot of in a lot of situations, especially with new stuff. It's a real marketing relationship. It's more branding. Yeah, it's a total like it's brand development. It's brand and and that said, so then I have like a year and a half ago, I started a, a, my own imprint. Right, which I think in in my brain and hopefully in reality at some point is very much more tethered to the idea because I'm a sort of historically and currently a I shop labels like right you know I know you got Ziggs are on in the red and like I've I buy a lot of just in the red records that like I don't even know you know sure and and when I used to work at Sub Pop and I talked to people that were a little bit older than me and when when they've kind of first heard about Sub Pop in the late 80s and early 90s and stuff like that basically the the deal was like if you went to the record store and you saw the Sub Pop logo on the record, you would just buy that record without hearing the band at all because you knew it was good or you knew you were going to like it or it was... Well, and that was part of this, right? You had the... I remember seeing the, like, hanging diorama, the Sub Pop sold here in in record stores or whatever. And I buy that, like... I you know I know your the intelligence who I know is like your friend Lars like I found that record totally is just like well this is on in the red yeah. and I'm gonna it's buy Lars's it. birthday today by the oh, way well, awesome. happy birthday Lars happy birthday Lars I, and that's a band that I found entirely by just buying it from in the red because it's on in the red and I was on the website and I was buying something else or whatever totally and then, and then became one of my favorite bands you know? right so but, let's talk about that though so your company that you started the imprint that you started at Vanguard that you're running. It's called Easy Sound Recordings. Right. And now it's technically separate. It's totally separate from Vanguard. But it was started as sort of like an imprint under Vanguard. but um, Or just sort of not necessarily under Vanguard, but through the same, you know, parent company. But now, so yeah. And basically that point was over the years, you know, there were things that didn't fit our sort of the aesthetic of Vanguard or what have you, or maybe just like wasn't a, our stat like Vanguard wasn't marketing a label identity necessarily. It was more, um, like I said, it was like artist service and marketing relationships with, you know, these other kinds of artists. And I don't know if there was just an opportunity where several bands that I like was familiar with and, and really liked, there was an opportunity to form this new thing and, and to have it, sort of from the outset hopefully be something where I was super stoked even though it was small to see like very early on that we were like people that like on our website you could just tell like these people just bought everything we put up on the website and right. there was this one guy in Seattle he was like the first guy and like Terry my partner in the in the label was like holy shit this dude has just bought he's just every time we put it up he's like the first door guy to order and like and so that was the thing that's why I wanted to craft this sort of label identity of like yeah if it's on Easy Sound if I see the Easy Sound logo like I sort of know what it's going to sound like, but and I also sort of know what it, it's going to be good. I mean, was it hard to go into like 
your bosses and convince them to let you do something like this? Well, basically, because my boss, to his credit, was always, I mean, he digs these kind of bands, and he, he, I think he was sort of also kind of frustrated that there wasn't, like, a lane with either Vanguard or Sugar Hill to, like, work with Vetiver or bands like that. Like, he's like, fuck, I love Vetiver, you know? Uh, and so this, there was just this sort of serendipitous moment where a lot of these guys were either out of their deals or working on records and they sort of came to me in various ways of like, oh, you know, the, the donkeys are making a record and then Devendra, who I, I'm friendly with Devendra Banner, he's like, oh, this guy Rodrigo, uh, that was, it was just, oh, I had just seen him open for Devendra. He was like, oh, he's actually making a record. It's really great. And so all these things happened at the exact same time and I just took a step back and I was like, wait a minute, this is a thing. And went to my boss and said, listen, this is this is not like let's, start a label and try to start trying to sign bands. Like here's six records that I know it was easy for me to like put a business plan together and say, right. We can release these six records this year and it will, and like announce them all at the same time. And like sort of from the outset have a kind of uh label sort of like raising detra. Like this is what we're trying to do here. You know? Thing. Well, what's interesting just to me and sort of our relationship is like, I worked with a lot of these bands 15 years, 10 years ago at Sub Pop or so, uh, Fruit Bats, mm -hmm. uh, Vetiver, Howlin' Rain, which Ethan was on, in Comets oh, on right, Fire yeah. back then. So I've worked with all of these people. And then, you know, you think of like sort of these trends in music and these people at one point were signed to like another record label. And then for whatever reason, they're, they're, not on sub pop anymore and they're looking to work with someone else and they end up working with you. And then it's like, I just saw fruit bats are going on tour with, uh, my morning jacket. Yeah. Which is yeah. huge for them. And I don't know if they ever went on a tour that big before that ever's going out with Wilco and like, exactly. Rodriguez that was the other one I was saw. Yeah. Like, and it's like, it kind of made me think about it the other day when I read that it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter you know, how much fucking press you get at one point if you keep doing it, you know, like, and you're good, which the, these guys obviously are, but not all these, some of these guys right. suck, but they, they don't. And and then, you know, these opportunities can come up. And, and so was this, I want to know what your relationship with these bands was and why you decided to work with them and, and how working with them sort of got them going to do all this other stuff that they're doing right now. Well, my it's what's weird is that the other the kind of uh I think the the spoke of the wheel. I wouldn't I don't think I would know any of these bands if I did a, a when, uh, another first, sort of first thing of like let me see if they're going to fucking let me do this thing at Vanguard sure. was I produced this John Fahey tribute record in 2004, I think, and it was and it was like right before the sort of like folk neo folk kind of thing really happened. So, but I, Devendra had put out uh, his first record on with young God and like, like some of that stuff was starting to happen. And I was into that stuff and I knew that Vanguard had this guy in the catalog, John Fahey, and it was sort of definitely a, a like real figurehead to this scene. And so well, I remember seeing those bands. I mean, I saw Devendra play in front of like 15 people sitting down at like a weird church near right. my house and when I started to become aware of a lot of those bands that were doing that at a time, definitely like John Fahey's name started popping up everywhere, you know. And that's exactly what, and like I heard like the M Ward put out this Transfiguration of Vincent record on Merge, which trans, the, the title of the record is a John Fahey reference. And then he like referenced, there was like an interview I read and I was like, I think this is a thing. 
But it was right at this point before, like, none of these dudes had managers or, like, late, real labels. I mean, Immort was on Merge, but they, they were all... It was just so easy to be like, hey, dudes, uh, I got my boss to give us some money to make a John Fahey record, and it just happened very easily. And I just dealt directly with... I got to know Devendra, and I got to know Eric, because Fruit Bats are on it. It was right when Mouthfuls came out on Sub Pop. And, right. and Devendra was on Michael Jira from right. The Swans, like personal record right label, young basically. god and that's yeah. who i got i just emailed michael gira just like and uh, just ran i was just sort of like i'm let me email m gira at young god.com he was like sure i'm great davinger would love it here's his cell phone or whatever and like that's how it all happened and like sufian stevens is on in calexico and it was just like right before all these people kind of had their moment anyway so we made that record and then i just stayed friends with Eric and Devendra and all these people over the years. And then that's how I got to know Andy and then through Rodrigo. And so, I, I, you know, and then Eric throws this festival called Wachika up in Sonoma. And I went there a couple of years ago and I was just like, and a lot of these bands were, the donkeys were playing and Vetiver was playing. And uh, I was just kind of like, well, this is, I just want this, this as a thing, this is a record label. Like this is a group of people who are collaborative and sort of share an aesthetic and we're all, kind of record geeks in the same way we all like geek out on the same like records that not that many people have probably and then so it just became i like i think the donkeys had sent me a record that they were making and i was like i don't know dudes i don't think this is going to work on vanguard and then uh same thing it was happening with Howlin' rain and then i talked to eric and i was like is it would it be is it totally crazy for us to just do this as a thing like as its own thing and it was like well maybe but it just became really apparent that like, oh, all these people are going to have records, and all of these people already know each. So, the yeah, they're all kind of they're all friends too. I mean, and we didn't have a name for the label. Like that group of artists, like named the label. It was just like an email trail of like, what should we call this? And then it was like, what should the logo be? And so like, it wasn't like I started a label. It's called Easy Sound. Here's a record deal, kid. It was like, let's do this thing, and. Everybody, and so I feel like it has this real kind of like raw, raw go team kind of you know sort of thing behind it because everybody was just there at the beginning, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned that the Wachika Festival, which is what Eric from the Fruit Bats sort of puts on, he or curates it, I guess. Right, I think he maybe does less of the curation now, but yeah, he's still definitely involved. It's this weekend, but right, this weekend, and then the other one that kind of. I guess maybe you would call it a sister festival. I don't fucking know, but is the Pickathon up in Clackamas, Oregon? Right, where I'm from. Well, so Pickathon, which I can't even fucking believe that <laughs> right. anybody's doing anything there because I lived in a trailer park there and I used to hitchhike down the highway so I could play Spy Hunter. Dude, Clackamas is real life. Like, so yeah, Terry <laughs> real life stories of Clackamas. Terry Groves, who uh, is a partner in the Pickathon Festival and does a lot of the booking, he. So when the same thing, when all this was happening, like I was like, somebody's going to have to like run this, like, or help me run this. And then Eric from Fruit Bats was like, you should call Terry. And I didn't know Terry, but then all the bands knew him. He was sort of just like, and so he and I kind of run the deal. And then, and then we've started this series where he, we've been started putting out pick archives of Pickathon. We did one with Ty and King Tough and like we're, we're doing, we that's the more. first one, right? That was the second one we did. Those darlings, diarrhea planet on oh, record right. store day. And then the, in May, the Ty King Tough one came out. And, uh, so we're going to do a series of sort of like limited Pickathon archive releases just because, yeah, it's sort of a sister festival when, to the label. Well, yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of this kind of crossover music 
as far as bands and stuff go. When's the Pickathon Festival? So the Pickathon Festival is the last weekend in July, first weekend of August. So I think it's like July 31st to August 2nd or whatever that weekend is. That's great. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, you mentioned um, uh, Lee Von Helm earlier, yes. Yes. working with him at Vanguard. Yes. And, you know, uh, sort of famous... Anyone, everyone should know the story of the band or the last waltz or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the mythos of this, right. of this band, but you made a documentary. Yeah. So my buddy, Jacob, the guy who I moved out here with, uh, I had like, he, he came out here to go to USC film school. We made a bunch of movies together when he was in film school and lived together. And then, uh, subsequently he did some music videos. I hired him to do some music videos. And then like when we put out leave, what was Levon's like comeback record called dirt farmer, Levon was like, well, I, I, I kind of want to do a video, but I kind of want to do like a short film but with a couple of the songs. Cause Levon being an actor and he's in the right stuff and coal miners daughter and all that. He's, he's a performer, you know? And so Jake wrote, I was like, I got my buddy Jake. I was like, dude, do you want to like write something about like based on this record? So we made this like short film, called uh only halfway home which is kind of this like weird little like bank robbery kind of like narrative that weaves in some of the songs and that was just like a 25 minute thing that was used as like a marketing tool for the record but jake comes back from the the shoot from that and he was like well i kind of left the camera running most of the time and i think there's like more to this than just like the promo video and so we actually went and met with Bonafide as they come back into the story. I went to meet with Albert and Ron, and I was like, is this a thing? And it's just, like, Levon telling stories about catfish and, like, smoking weed and, you know, whatever, and, like, around the kitchen table. And they're like, this is incredible access, you know. And so we thought, Jake's like, awesome. I'm going to go back up there for six more weeks, and, uh, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to have a movie. And he was there for three years. Right. <laughs> and uh, so it was a long... But at the end of the day, and then so along the way, a lot happened with Levon. He got sick again. His He won a Grammy, but he didn't go to the Grammys. His daughter had a baby. It was his first grandchild. It was just a lot of stuff happened in his life that we happened to sort of be there for. And... Um, and so there's it's a it's a rock and roll movie that from a very famous person that doesn't have that has a huge long history but there's not really a lot of archival footage and there's not actually that much music in it it's really storytelling and sure know. and I mean I've seen the movie and it's great and, and it's a brutal story and it has been from almost the beginning with Correct. that band you know and it, it continues on and, and and he had a he had like a famous thing where he had like a a jam session at his house or whatever. Right, the rambles, the midnight ramble. Did you ever get to go to those? Or? I did, and it's like I went to a couple, and it was pretty incredible because you're just sitting in his his like house, which is also like basically like a barn, it's, right? Well, yeah, it's like a, this big wooden sort of A-frame house barn. They call it the barn. It's not really a barn, but it's um he and he records there, and so like the like living space of his house is like his live room for the studio. And but then on Saturday nights, he would turn it over and just like they would put out folding chairs and he would play. And then sometimes if like Elvis Costello was in town or My Morning Jacket was in town, like in New York, they would come up and play with it. So it became this sort of like famous thing. And so I went and uh, a couple of times and it really was like I was sitting I was like I was sitting in the front row. And like if you like cross your legs at the wrong time, you'll like kick the hi hat over like it was right. it's like that intimate, you know. And uh, and then, you know, the bands or whatever, I, you know, everybody sort of adjourns to uh, 
Levon's kitchen table and he would like smoke joints and tell just incredible. Like when I was there, he told this story, which I think I maybe, I think it ended up in the movie about like, about like the differences between Woodstock and Woodstock 98 or whatever. Cause he was like, I played both of them, you know? I would imagine, uh, it was the amount of rape at yeah. Woodstock '98. <laughs> yeah. Was the, there was like way more rape? A marked difference. There was in, in just rape. like a lot more rape at yeah. the last Woodstock, and a, and a, and more Limp Biscuit too. Yeah, and that. And I don't know if there's a correlation <laughs> between the two. I can only imagine that uh, when uh, you know during uh, the Offspring set, it was like different than during the Richie Haven. Exactly. Yeah, I was going right. to say the Richie Haven singing "Freedom." There's probably not a ton of rape happening in front of him, whereas Limp Biscuit singing Cornhole, your <laughs> right. butthole, or what. I don't remember what the song was. Chocolate Starfish. And the hot dog flavored water. Ass. Yeah. There's probably a ton of rape going on during that song. I think so too. It's just, you know, it's just the mentality. Yeah. No, but I think it was a different we time. We deal with it every day. We struggle with these things. <laughs> Anyways, so running out of time here, but I wanted to talk to you real quickly. Um, uh, you and I, I don't want to, we can't really, I think legally we can't really give too much information away. Correct. But I will say, because they are, I think they're advertising it. We got a thing saying that it's happening, but you and I were on a game show That's right. together. That's right. Um, it's called Boom. Yes. I, I think, I think we can say that. I think we, I think we can say that, right? Yeah. Um, we can't really give away... But we can't say what happened on the game show because I think legally they can sue us for That's like, like a trillion dollars, for ten million dollars. I think it's each. I think it's ten million. I think it's ten million dollars each for each occurrence. For each time we mention what happened on the actual game show. Um, but do you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, you're a big trivia guy. I mean, yeah, I will talk about that a little. So yeah, my friend Ryan, who's in my band, who you got to know as well, uh, is a multiple time Jeopardy champion, trivia sort of czar of Los Angeles. You guys are big trivia dudes. <laughs> We're big trivia dudes. Four time Los Angeles uh, city trivia champions we are. Um but uh, you know, none of that could have prepared us for for the roller coaster that was uh our game show experience. Yeah, and I wish that we could talk I think maybe we'll have yeah. to talk about it. we'll have to do like a, a uh, we'll do like a DVD commentary yes. of the game show while we're on there. We'll do the commentary you and I sort of like uh, John Melius and right. Arnold Schwarzenegger for Conan the Barbarian. Totally. But it, uh as uh uh What's his name? Uh, Steve, uh, as Steve Perry uh, told our producer Jessica Hunley one time about the band Journey, I'll just say that this, us being on the game show, it was a journey. Yeah. Um, so to quote Steve Perry of Journey, about, I, every time I use the word journey in any context, now I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to attribute it. Truly it to was Steve Perry. a journey. It really was. So I have a treat for you, Stephen, because okay. since you are such a country music fan, okay, yes, and you are a trivia nut, yes, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and normally we, we we don't always do this, but you know we we've been uh, doing this thing on the show where we have like band names and we have to oh, guess. Yeah. Yeah, Yasi yeah. hated it when she was on here. I did see that part of Yasi's episode. Yeah. she was not. She you saw it, was it? A, or I heard it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say we we we, we <laughs> deleted the footage, only. so yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine that you would have seen that anywhere. But uh, yeah, she she was not a big fan of that. Everyone else. <laughs> loved it. I don't know what it was about her, but she didn't like it. So what I'm going to do here, though, is a little bit different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the name of a country musician. Okay. And I made it not too obscure so that okay. people at home can play along, we'll too. Okay. 
and you're going to give me the state that they were born in. Oops, this is going to be difficult. No, okay. that's not. That's good. Uh, but okay. for a bonus point, and you don't win anything either. Not unlike state of death. Uh, you know, but for a bonus point, if you can name the town that they're from okay. and the state, so do your best. Whew, okay. You don't lose anything either. Okay. Yeah. No. You get to go back to easy sound after this. There's not. A, there's nothing. <laughs> right. I'm not taking anything from okay. you. Okay. Good to so, know. All right. The Vetiver Masters aren't on the line. That's right. <laughs> and I, I own the label yeah, after right. the end of this this weird country game. So okay. First off, Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings is from Texas. You want to get a bonus point for what city? Uh, Waylon Jennings is from. I, I don't know which city. Okay. Texas is correct. Yeah. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson is also from Texas, I guess, unless he was not born in Texas. <laughs> correct. He is from Texas. Okay. Uh, and by the way, Waylon Jennings is from Littlefield, Texas. Okay. If you know where that is. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't either. Uh, what do you want to name where Willie Nelson was from in Texas? Um, I don't know where he's from in Texas. Abbott, Texas. Abbott, Texas. Okay. I think I've heard that. I'm going to give you a hint. All of these country musicians... Unlike a lot of rock musicians and or rap musicians are from really small towns that you've never yeah, heard of. No, that's for sure. Which is really interesting. Hank Williams, senior. Uh, Hank Williams, senior, Alabama. Wow, that's a good. That, that's good. Where, where in uh, you're three for three? Where do you want to guess for where he was born? I don't even know if this is a city. Almeria. Never heard of it. He's from Butler County. Butler County. Okay. So I don't even know if. They even don't even know. Maybe there wasn't even a city back yeah, then. Maybe he was just he, from he the was county. Route 7 Butler of Butler County. county. Yeah, he was right. born in like a field yeah. in Butler County. Immediately started drinking. Right. He died he's, at 27, no? He's a 27 clubber. For That's sure. right. On Kirk New Co- Year's Day. Wow. Kirk Cobain and Hank Williams. How about this, though? You mentioned him earlier. We're talking about Bocephus. Yeah. <laughs> Hank Williams Jr., where is he born at? Well, I mean, I would. Say also Alabama for Hank Williams Jr., um, but unless he randomly wasn't born there, he identifies as an Alabaman. Right. He's actually from Louisiana. Okay. Close enough. Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. So we're not. He gonna... must have been born on during a Louisiana Hayride episode. I think that was what's happened there. It's quite possible. Um, they could have been down in Bossier City gambling, and maybe Hank Williams Senior lost a bet, popped out a kid, and he was yeah. forced to yeah. make love to a woman yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with sunglasses on. Miss Audrey. In a black hat. Okay, so, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, you don't get a point for that. So you're three out of four, though. That's okay. pretty good. I, that's better than uh, our producer, Jessica Hundley, did this morning over breakfast, so, and myself. Merle Haggard. Uh, Merle Haggard is from Tulare, California. Tulare, California. Now, I'm going to give you two points on that, because when I looked it up, it said he's from Oildale, California. I think that's true. Oildale. It's, it's just Kern County, Oildale, Tulare. The reason I said Tulare is because he uh, there's like a tribute album called Tulare Dust. But I think Oildale is actually, and he was born in like a converted boxcar um, like that they made into like a shotgun home. That sounds horrifying. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Oildale is actually correct. So I, I'll just take the one point. No, no, no. You're going to get two for that because no one else would even <laughs> come up with Tulare, nor would they know that he was born in a converted boxcar. Um, <laughs> I would have guessed Bakersfield just because that's right. sort of the, the thing that I you know associate with him, and that's just what would come to mind. How about this guy, Webb Pierce? Uh, Webb Pierce is, I want to say, I don't know, but I'm going to say Mississippi. No, nope. he's uh, Louisiana's okay. own. 
West Monroe, Louisiana. Okay. I think he's he's actually near where uh, that's near where my parents live, and that's where the Louisiana Country Music Hall of Fame is. Um, not uh, by chance, probably because of Webb Pierce, is mm-hmm. he's pretty much the only guy down there. <laughs> but also, that's where those uh, those duck call people are from. I oh, think. the dynasty, the dudes. duck dynasty. Yeah, so <laughs> same same county. Johnny Cash. Uh, Johnny Cash is. This is weird. See, because I have I'm I, I'm weirdly not that as into Johnny Cash as most people are, but I'm going to say Tennessee. Well, the reason why you're not that into Johnny Cash, well, most people that like Johnny Cash are not necessarily country music right. fans. You know, Johnny Come, Cash is like Bob Marley. Right. You know, and well, they, like, because they both lived in Jamaica, that's why. Well, that's that's that's, that's the only Richards, reason why. So, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's the same thing. It's like. People that your your mom has the Bob Marley Legend CD right. and, the and the Johnny Cash, Cash uh, Def Jam recordings. Hurt, hurt. Yeah, I love that hurt song. Yeah. It's my favorite song by Johnny Cash and Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's from Arkansas. So I'm not going to give uh, you a point okay. there because you should know that one. I definitely should. How about his wife, June Carter Cash? Where is she from? Uh, so June Carter Cash uh, of the Carter family lineage. Um, so, this is a real country music band talking right now. I'm going to say that they are... So, okay. The the Carter family are either from Virginia or Tennessee. And the reason why... So, the, the dawn of country music in 1927, Ralph Peer records the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers on like a field recording expedition. Those are the famous Bristol 27 recordings. And I don't know to where from where the, the Carter family came to that thing. I'm going to say Virginia. Correct. Virginia right. it is. And I'm going to give you a bonus point for giving that whole speech about it, because that's real country music knowledge right there, to know that they were 1927 field and all that good stuff. Okay, how about this one? Rita Coolidge. Um, 70 years young. Yeah, Chris and Rita, I have no idea. I'm going to say Mississippi. Tennessee. Okay. So you're all on that one. How about this guy? Charlie Pride. Uh, Our first African American in this country in music this bunch. trivia, um, <laughs> and I have no idea. I'm going to say Kentucky for Charlie Pride. Nope, Charlie Pride is from Mississippi. Oh man, I've gone Mississippi twice, and the reason I do that is because there's a shocking number of people that are from Mississippi. They have a whole trail. They have the country music trail where you get like a marker, like a historical marker, and there are enough of them for it to be like a thing. So that's why I've just been guessing Mississippi when I don't know, except for Charlie Pride. Well, that's the thing, too. So, and he's from Sledge, Mississippi. I mean, in some of these towns, so uh, Rita Coolidge, we forgot to mention, Lafayette, Tennessee, June Carter, Hilton's, Virginia, and Johnny Cash, Kingsland, Arkansas. Marty Stewart is from Philadelphia, Mississippi. Marty Stewart is not on this list. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, it's crazy though. Like, I'm, I mean, I've never even heard of some of these places, you know, how about this guy, Chris Christopherson, you know him as Cisco Pike. I, I know him as Cisco Pike <laughs> and as a, as a, as a scholar, as a Rhodes scholar. That's right. He, he landed a helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn. That's to deliver the demo tape. He currently resides in Hawaii. That's true. Um, and, but I don't know. He where. choked me one time in Santa Barbara because I told him I was trying to get a, I trying to leave the show because I needed to go to In-N-Out. <laughs> and he choked me. Um, 
I, so I, I don't know. So I'm just going to say he, he, he might, I don't know. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Santa Barbara, California, just in honor of that. No, story. no, no, no. Come on. Where's Chris Christopherson uh, from originally? Chris Christopherson might be from Georgia. He's from Texas. Okay. Oh yes. That's, that's a bad brick on that part. No, you, you knew that one. I did. So we got, we can't give you this one. All right. Jerry Jeff Walker. Jerry Jeff Walker is from New York. Wow. That's great. Where in New York? Jerry Jeff Walker, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to say he's from White Plains. He's uh, from Oneida. How do you say Oneida? O- Oneida. 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 Well, Jerry Jeff Walker's first album. So Jerry Jeff Walker is in a psychedelic band from San Francisco called Circus Maximus. That's correct. That uh, that was on Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And then he later recorded uh, Drifting Way of Life, which is a total just like Dylan, like early Dylan kind of aping uh, record on Vanguard, which is incredible as like a New York sort of like Greenwich Village folky. And then he was like, wait a minute. I'm going to go to Texas and be like king of the rednecks. And then he did that. Goodbye, Terralingua. Yeah, Viva Terralingua. Viva Terralingua. That's what it is. One time uh, we were down in uh, Marfa, Texas, um, and we met these two guys. One guy was named uh, Marfa Mike, and the other guy's name was, uh, I think it was Black Steve, but he's a white guy. We were at a party, and the cops showed up, and they arrested Marfa Mike, and as they were hauling him out to the cop car, and he was spitting and cussing, kicking up dirt. And We asked Black Steve, hey, what, what happened to Marfa Mike? And he said, hell, must have been that chili cook-off down in Terra Lingua. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can only imagine yeah, what, like, what Marfa, what went down. he just ate some chili and went fucking ape shit. Well, you know, that. so Billy Joe Shaver recently was in the news a couple years ago because he shot somebody in a bar fight. That's right. And so when he was on, when the trial came up, Speaking of country music legends, I don't know if he's on the list. He's but, not on the list but, because I knew you would know he was well, in Texas. Mississippian Jimmy Rogers. Uh, so when Bill Joe Shaver was on the stand, they say, "Is it not true, you know, Mr. Shaver, that you uh, you shot this man because he was going after your woman?" And Billy Joe Shaver, under oath, said, "Jack, I can get more women than a passenger train can haul," which is <laughs> quoting Jimmy Rogers as his response to the prosecutor. Is that a yes, Mr. Yeah. Shaver? You're under oath. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, okay, so this was t- taking it back to Waylon. Jesse Coulter, who was married to Waylon Jennings, where is she from? And, and this was an interesting one to me to find out because it made a lot of sense when I read the Waylon biography. Um, this I don't know either, but so I'm just going to say. I'm going to give you a hint. Okay, yeah. Talk you, where Waylon kind of got his start as a solo artist before he moved to Nashville. Um, okay, I mean, he was a cricket. He um, played with Buddy Holly. Right. He was in he was right. in Lubbock. Right. He started playing with Buddy Holly. Then Buddy Holly famously right. dies. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Gets on the plane. Gets on the plane. Yeah, right. And he was Waylon had his seat. You right. know that yeah, story. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And he told Buddy Holly. He said, "I hope this plane fucking crashes with you in it." And then gave up his seat. And then the plane crashed. And that fucked Waylon yeah. up forever. Because uh, they were like best buddies, and Buddy Holly had given him a start and brought him out to New York and all this shit. So, so Waylon, after he's in the crickets, he goes to this town, city, to become a solo artist, learn his chops there, playing every night. What city is that? And that's where Jesse Coulter's from. I mean, yeah, I'm just going to say, I don't know. I'm going to say Tennessee. I'm going to say, yeah. No. Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona. That's where Waylon got Oh, right, because his first, like, they, this was like a record store day thing. They did his, like, Phoenix, like, radio recordings thing that, like, that dude... Jason, who writes for Aquarium Drunkard, helped put out. So that exactly. Was, yeah. He was on the radio. Yeah. He was, like, doing a podcast. 
I think, yeah. in Phoenix, yeah. Arizona, yeah. Waylon James. Waylon Banger's ball. <laughs> That's right, Waylon. Exactly. All right, I got this. Okay, this is going to be, this one, if you get this one, it's like three points. Okay. And, and we're almost done here. We're wrapping up here on Jed Banger's ball. Jack Reno, and the trick is that his name is Reno. Um, Jack Reno of Reno and Smiley fame, I'm going to say, I'm going to say North Carolina. He's from Bloomfield, Iowa, and the fact that you even know who Jack Reno is, I'm going to give you one point for that. <laughs> now, here's another here's another tough one. This guy just passed away. It's sad. I saw him uh, play uh, here a couple years ago. Little guy. Little Jimmy Dickens. Little Jimmy Dickens. Uh, uh, famous Grand Old yeah, Opry. Grand Old Opry star, Little Jimmy Dickens. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Georgia, just because nobody's been from Georgia yet. Little Jimmy Dickens is from Bolt. West Virginia. Oh, awesome. There's not been any West Virginians either. So we're not going to count that one either. And now, finally, uh, last but not least, probably one of my favorite guys of all time, probably like, uh, you know, a fashion icon, if you will, uh, the inventor, probably the first guy to play the wah-wah pedal, or as he called it, the Womper Stomper. Uh, just one of my favorite singers and songwriters of all time, Poke Salad Annie, big hit for I know where uh, we're headed here, but I, I don't know if I know where he's from, but... Tony Joe White. I think that Tony Joe White is from Oklahoma. Oh, Stephen. I, I, oh, Stephen. I know. I knew that. I knew Tony. I should have studied Tony Joe. Come White. on, Tony Joe Stephen. Poke salad Annie. Poke salad Annie. Uh, oh, in the lyric, he talked. Um, Gators got your granny. Right. So is he in Florida? No. No. Or no, there are gators in Florida. I know he's from Louisiana. He's from Louisiana. Yeah, I mean Oak oh, Grove, Louisiana, swamp. right it's on the all swampy, Why right on the border of Arkansas. I just had a, I just had, I, I do love the Tony Joe White. I like the first two records and the disco record. The disco record is great. I love that uh, cocaine country, as they call it. Uh, if, if you don't know Tony Joe White, go out there and look up. Even trolls love rock and roll because it's it's a good song for all ages. It's about trolls. <laughs> it's about rock and roll. And the f- there's a twofer of the first two records, which is incredible. All right, we're going to count it up here real quick. We got three, five, seven. You got a lot of bonus. The ones you got right, you got bonus points on eight, nine points. All right. I, I'm sorry about Tony J. White. I don't know how many, nine out of what, doesn't yeah. matter. You won, though. Yeah, I win this. I say you win. Brought to you by Fiji Water. That's right. <laughs> this is not brought to you by Fiji Water. Don't, that, that's not. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me. All right, I'll see you back at work. All right. All right, that was Stephen Brower on Jed Banger's Ball. Thanks again for listening. As always, we're brought to you by This Is Not A Pipe, recorded here at Green Street, beautiful Los Angeles, California. If you want to learn more about Stephen Brower or his record company or the Fruit Bats or Vetiver, go to Easy Sound Records. It's easysound.co. There's no M on the end of that. My producers, as always, Jessica Hunley, Nicholas Fahey. Thanks for listening to The Ball. I'll see you next time.